choir. Would you join me this morning in the Gospel of John chapter 4? Gospel of John chapter 4. And I want to read just the first three verses. John's Gospel chapter 4 verses 1 through 3. This morning I want to begin for the month of March and throughout the month of April as we move toward the Easter season a new series of sermons under the title The Faces of Jesus. And I want us to take a look at what becomes obvious in the movement of Jesus as he moves through the gospel narratives and yet the presentation of his face says a tremendous amount to those who encounter his countenance. And so I want to take a journey introductory wise here in the fourth chapter of John's gospel and look at the first three verses that very well may appear obscured or less important than the remaining of the chapter which is dominated by the Samaritan woman. But I want us to take a look at what happens before we get to Samaria. John's Gospel chapter 4 beginning at verse 1. When therefore the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John. Although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and departed again into Galilee. Amen. You may be seated. On the surface, verse 3 will be our verse of concentration. And on the surface, upon one's initial reading, there just does not appear to be anything of substance in verse 3. In fact, it really sounds as if it's nothing more than a transitional phrase and that the substance of verse 3 just does not carry any influence in the remaining experience of what we witness in chapter 4. But listen closely to verse 3 again because it's not so much in the words plural than it is in the word singular. He left Judea and departed again into Galilee. I'll just give you a heads up. This sermon is simply about one word, the verb left. That's it, left. And so this, term, this sermon is entitled, The Face of Restoration. The Face of Restoration. Here's again one of those texts that causes me to provide for you, because I can almost read your mind, what in the world is one word going to tell us 
he left. But it causes me to have to tell you what I believe to be a good Bible study method for you to engage so that you will catch the value of words in a singular verse. It's a method that I think will not only help you tremendously, but I can bear witness that it's been the method I've used for at least the last 25 years of my gathering to prepare to preach, and it will overwhelmingly bless you in your personal Bible study reading. It's a four-step process. Number one, observation. We're going to see that in the text, observation. Observation simply means that when I read a verse, let me read all the verses that surround the verse. And while I'm reading all the verses, let me make observation of what's happening in the verse. Let me look for particular words, particular phrases, particular names, people, buildings, places. Let me see all that seems to be surrounding the text that makes it so important that it deserves my attention. Observation. Observation means that I want to put on my forensic hat. I want to act like I'm a forensic scientist and I want to turn over every rock. I want to look and see every rock that's in the text, every sense of influence. As I said before, every word used, sentence infliction, transitional words, prepositions, verbs, nouns. I want to look at everything in the verse because it will help me at least recognize that in my initial observation, things may be scattered. And I want to see what makes this text so critical. When I've done observation, I then move to interpretation. But I use interpretation much more in the understanding of asking the question, what does all this information I just gathered in observation mean? What does it mean in terms of What's it trying to say to me? In my observatory moments, I've created all these dots around the text. Now, how do I connect these dots? What are they trying to say to me? What is Paul, Peter, Jesus, James, John, Isaiah, Amos? What are they trying to say to me in the text? Observation. Interpretation. Then I move to the third part, correlation. I use correlation to say that whatever I'm reading here, what I find here, is it being said someplace else? If Paul is saying it, is it something that he disciples from what Jesus has said? Is he borrowing from an Old Testament prophet? Is it a theme that seems to run throughout both the Old and the New Testament or is it relegated to the Old or relegated to the New? I'm trying to correlate what the verse may be saying in other spaces. You're going to see me do that for you right here in the second. And then once I've done observation and then I've done interpretation 
and then I've done correlation, then I'm left with application. I need to know now, once I've observed and I've figured out how to connect the dots and I've discovered that it's been said in other books of the Bible or it's a singular saying by this particular writer, then what does it mean to me? How do I apply it to my own life? How do I make the scripture become flesh and dwell within me? I mentioned the method because in John 4, 1 through 3, it presents one of those texts that it seems like is nothing more than just words that makes up a sentence, but it's actually deeper. It's deeper because the one verb that I told you about, left, in the Greek has a interesting and yet sensitive meaning. It's a verb that meant he left, but it also means that Jesus was sent away. That Jesus dismissed himself. That Jesus decided it was time to make a move. And the verb left, you can't see it, but in the Greek, it's actually used in different places all over the New Testament. For example, in James chapter 5, and I think it's around verse 15, James talks about how left actually means that God has forgiven you for your sins. He's left you, not empty-handed, but cleansed by his grace. In other words, when those would attempt to judge you for your efforts. God says, I leave what you have done where it needs to be in the sea of forgiveness. And I've set you free. It's also used in Matthew chapter 27, verse 50, when Jesus says, as the Bible says, when he's on the cross, he gives up the ghost, or the King James says, he yielded up his spirit. It meant that Jesus let it go. He turned it over into the hands of God and said, Lord, into your hands, I give you my spirit. It's Jesus sending away, dismissing what's in him that he might let the Father do what the Father can only do. Restore what has been lost. Jesus is trying to say to us, even on the cross, that there are times when you encounter life's difficulties, but you have to come to a point where you decide that, Lord, I'm going to dismiss this and into your hands I give this situation. And keep on living, you'll come to a point where you recognize when you have done all that you can do and that all of your energy has been expended and even all of your wisdom has somewhat been expended, you come to recognize this is not only too large for me, but it's too overwhelming. Let me dismiss this from my own body, get the weight off of me and put it into the hands of the God who can carry all of my burdens 
and who has an answer for all of my concerns. Father, into your hands I give you this. But the verb also left means he's going to leave it alone. Jesus says in Matthew 9, 14, that when the disciples were trying to prohibit children from coming unto him, the old King James Version says that Jesus says, suffer the little children to come unto me, here it is, here's the verb, and forbid them not. Translation, leave them alone. Let them come to me. For such is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, Jesus says, if I could get you, adult, to understand the importance of how this child recognizes parent as being one to surrender to for all provision, then you and I can get somewhere. Jesus is trying to tell us if I could get you to simply leave some stuff alone and stop trying to solve all the problems by yourself because you can't. But give it to me. In fact, come to me. But leave it alone. There's something in us that consistently wants to respond to every situation, every accusation, every something that someone says and does. And God says sometimes you don't need to say anything. Just leave it alone and it will die on its own because sometimes when you and I interject into what someone is saying and doing, we give it power. We give it momentum. And it's exactly what they are looking for. When Jesus says, just don't say anything, leave it alone and watch how it dies. But the verb also means to send away. Now we're talking about one word, one verb, left. Not a left hand turn, but left. He is in one space, but he decides to leave there and go another. And the verb also means to send away. It borrows its connotation from Leviticus 16 where the priest on the day of atonement would go in and provide sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins for the community. He would have two goats. One goat he would lay his hands on and after laying his hands and anointing the goat with oil, he would say a prayer for the forgiveness of the sins of the people and he would release the goat out into the wilderness. And the idea was that the goat surface into the wilderness does not know how to get back. It would be symbolic gesture of saying that when I release you from your sins, that's why I send them away because they don't know how to get back unless you go and get it and bring it back. It's Jesus' way of trying to tell us in this single verb that when God releases us from sin, sometimes God, in all of his efforts, cleansed us totally, but we sometimes go back and get what God has sent away. I set you free from that burden. You prayed and you asked for forgiveness and you asked <clears throat> for grace and you asked for mercy to move beyond that. I let you go beyond that and then you go out and search for it and bring it back to your life. 
I wanted you to leave it for a purpose. And that was that it would never haunt or challenge your life again. The priest would take the other goat and lay his hands upon it, but he would slay it that the blood may be drained from it and the blood would be sprinkled or put into the basin and then sprinkled on the mercy seat. Symbolic gesture that God would not just send it away, but God would even cleanse me of that which keeps me from being holy before him. Then there is the meaning of the word, still, still talking about the word left, still talking about verse 3. He left Judea and then went back to Galilee. He left. There's another meaning. To dismiss. To dismiss means to relieve, to set free, to lift the burden of guilt, shame, and to release it. Sometimes even after God has forgiven us and cleansed us and sent that thing away into the sea of forgetfulness, we harnessed and maintained the guilt and the shame of what has ailed us. We can never catch freedom the way that it was intended to be because we keep allowing shame to dominate us. And we miss the language of Jesus. If we could just grasp it, <clears throat> we would see the value. Whom the Son sets free is free indeed. That's Jesus' way of saying, if, if I've cleansed you, Trust me, you are forgiven. No, no need to carry around the guilt or the baggage of shame any longer. And I think it's psychologically difficult for us to really kind of comprehend that in God's forgiveness, I don't have to feel guilty about it anymore. I need to go on to the next level of my spiritual progress. That one verb, that one verb, what I just shared with you came through observation, interpretation, correlation, and application. And it's actually right here in the text. That one verb says that Jesus left, went away from Judea, and made his way back to Galilee. Now the question is why? What's in Galilee that you're going to come back to Jesus. What, what's the reason for coming back and leaving Judea? There are two reasons, and then I'm done. Two reasons. The first reason is you have to read John chapter 3 <clears throat> and then look at the verses from 22 all the way down to the end of the third chapter and you'll see the reason why Jesus decides to leave Judea. <clears throat> it's an interesting experience because the ministry of Jesus and the ministry of John the Baptist <clears throat> has a bit of a correlation in working with each other and they're out doing the same thing. John is the forerunner, John the Baptist, who came to tell the world a single sentence, repent, because the kingdom of heaven is at hand, John chapter 1. He is sounding the alarm. In fact, when you read the text, it says that there were those who heard him and came to the Jordan River and John baptized them. But Jesus was doing the same thing. 
trumpeting the kingdom of God centered around the term repentance. In other words, Jesus says, along with John, we need you to recognize that you fallen. We'll use Pauline language, even though it wasn't evident in John's time, yet it, it's applicable. Recognize that we've all fallen short of the glory of God. We've all got issues, we've got challenges, we've got shortcomings, no matter how perfecting we may desire to be or perfect we think we are, says John and Jesus, you got issues. You got stuff you need to deal with and you first need to deal with your eternal state. Repent, the word means to turn around. In other words, Jesus and John is saying, change directions of your life. You wonder why it keeps going the way it is. Well, that's because you keep going in the same direction you've been going in. And they say, change direction, turn around. Jesus and John pleads, John does, come to him who's coming after me, whose shoelaces, I'm not even worthy enough to tie. Jesus says, come unto me and I'll give you rest and I will take that burden off of you for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. They're both preaching the same thing, but there appears to be a challenge. People can take what you intended to be one thing and twist it into becoming something totally different. And if they would only do one thing, if you didn't understand, ask me. Don't, don't ask her, don't ask him, don't ask them, ask me. And do you know how many times we have misunderstandings that turns into overwhelming blown up issues because we fail to ask the person, the one person that we misunderstood? Well, what did he say? Well, what did she say? That's not what I heard. And all you have to do, as we used to say, just go to who? The horse's mouth. Hear it directly from them. But we some strange creatures. We would rather not do that because we have one agenda and the agenda may not line up with the objective of the person who said what was said and it may sound different so we don't want to do that unless what we thought does not actually come to fruition. So we'd rather bask in confusion than to simply find out what's actually accurate. And that's what happened in this story in John chapter 3. Because if you read verse 22, verse 3 of chapter 3 of verse 22, the text says that folk had got word that Jesus was doing more baptizing than John. Rumor had got around. In fact, Jesus wasn't actually doing any baptizing at all. Read the text, it says that his disciples were. But can you believe this? Folk wanted to make an issue about who's doing more baptisms. Look at the text. 
It says, after these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he was spending time with them and baptizing. And John also was baptizing in the air in Anan near Salem, because there was much water there, and they were coming and were being baptized. It just seems to me that the excitement would be, Dr. George, people are being changed. Their lives are being restored. They're being baptized. Isn't that the most important thing as opposed to who's baptizing? If it's John or if it's Jesus or Jesus' disciples, who cares? It's all, almost like the person who says, well, I'm hungry, but the person who has food to give to me doesn't believe in things the same way I do. So because we have different religious beliefs, I'm just not going to take food from them. I'm going to wait for a Baptist to come by and give me my chicken as opposed to a Muslim. That's absurd when you're hungry. See, y'all missed the point. The point is, when you are in need, does it really matter how or who the person is as long as the need is being met and somebody comes by and erases the hunger that's dominating your soul? They were more concerned about was it John or was it Jesus? And yet, Jesus says, you know what? I will not let this drama ruin what the kingdom of God is doing. I'm not going to let somebody's wanting to recognize who's who, who's doing what to dominate this conversation. I will not do it. So here's what Jesus did. I say, number one, Jesus went back because Jesus said, or he left Judea because Jesus says, I refuse to let this untrue rift destroy the revolution that God is doing. I refuse to do that. So read John 3 again, and we get down to verse 25. It says, there arose a discussion on the part of John's disciples with a Jew about purification. That, that simply has relations to about how do we make ourselves pure, how do we make ourselves righteous, and it's connected to baptism. And verse 26 says, they came to John and said, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan to whom you have borne witness, behold, he is baptizing and everybody going to him. In other words, John, remember, the person who was with you and you bad witness and said you were the forerunner, where everybody going to his church now to be baptized and they're not coming over here. I like John though. Because John and Jesus were working in cooperation with each other. Watch what John does. Verse 27 says, John answered and said, a man receives nothing unless it is given to him from the heavens. In other words, John says, I recognize that what I am doing as a gift of God, I'm not tripping on because Jesus is doing the same thing or his disciples. The fact that God chose me and let me do it, I'm happy enough all by myself. I don't care who likes it or who has to say what they're going to say. As long as I am in the will of God, that's all I'm concerned about. Here it is. He says next in verse 28, you yourselves bear me witness that I said, I told y'all, it's not about me. I'm not the Christ. I'm just the one who's to come before him. 
That's what he said. But here it is, 29. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and bears him, look at this, rejoices because of the bridegroom's voice. And so this joy of mine has been made full. John says the fact that he's out here, that, that's all I care about. I'm happy because not only do I know him, but I'm being used by him and I'm able to witness what God is doing. Stick with me. We're almost there. So John says, here's my word to all y'all. I must decrease. Isn't that what verse 30 says in your Bible? I must decrease. And he must increase. John said all I care about is, is that the master's objective of salvation to restore those who have been broken. When they look into his face and they get a chance to witness what restoration means, that's all I care about. And I'm willing to reduce myself and increase him so that someone whose life is broken may be restored. He then tells us in verse 31, he who is from above is above all. And he who's on the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. Notice the phrase, remember I told you observation, interpretation? He mentions him who is above twice. He mentioned him who is of the earth is of the earth. He's once again reiterating, let me make it clear to you, he says, this is not about me. It's about the Savior from above. He says, not only did we did cooperation, but John says, this is not a competition. We are not interested in being competitive. Oh, I wish I could get together with some of my clergy friends and remind them we are not in competition with each other. If this is really about what we say it's about, souls for eternity, is it really about how I do what I do and how you do what you do? Because when all of the dust, the dust settles at the end of the day, isn't it the question who came down the aisle and who gave their heart to Jesus Christ? Whose life that was shattered when they came to church on Sunday morning, when they left after the benediction, was restored to wholeness? Isn't that what it's all about? When they came in, they saw the preacher's face, but when they left out, did they see Jesus' face? Isn't that what it's all about? I'm so afraid that in church now we become so entertaining that we show up to church and we think we've had marvelous church when we have been entertained. Instead of recognizing and wrestling with the question, have we been empowered? Have we been envisioned with the vision 
of God. John says this ain't no competition. Why? Because folks' eternal life is at stake. And John says, I'm not interested in trying to make the competition. So what does John do? Beginning in verse 31, he takes his own disciples. Here's a big word, but don't let it frighten you because I'm going to tell you what it means. He takes his own disciples and begins to teach them about Christology. Here's what it means. He took them and said, let me tell you about Jesus. That's all it means. Just a big word. That's all it means. Because if you take off the ology, you're left with Christ. Let me tell you about Christ. And that's what he does beginning in verse 31. But 32, he says, what he has seen and heard of that he bears witness and no man receives his witness. In other words, he says, Jesus came and came to tell us what the father wanted to know. Go back to John 1. But he says, but to as many as received him, he gave them power. But he came unto his own and his own did not receive him. John says, in other words, do you know how many times the people will stand on Sunday morning to preach and they will hear People will hear the gospel and will leave out of the church the same way they came in. He says, disciples, students of the word, that's where our burden should be. Not if the preacher persuaded us, but if the Holy Spirit convicted us. And he says, let me tell you about Jesus. Verse 33, he who has received his witness has set his seal on this, that God is true. He says you can tell them who's been touched by God because when they leave, they're not the same as they came in. But something has changed their life and it's that face of the Redeemer who's restored their soul. Well, there's a second reason. I could read the rest of the chapter, but there's a real second reason. And the second reason hinges on what John says in verse 35 and 36. The father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. He who believes in the son has eternal life, but he who does not obey his son shall not see life. But the wrath of God abides on him. John says to his disciples, let me give you a simple principle. Roll with this. And you're going to be doing good biblical preaching. Believe on Jesus, heaven's your home. Reject Jesus, heaven ain't your home. That's simple. But that's not the clincher. That's not the reason, the preeminent reason why he left Judea. The preeminent reason is found in Mark chapter 6 and verses 17 round to verse 32. He left Judea because he got word that John the Baptist had been beheaded. He was beheaded by Herod the Antipas. And Herod was a strange guy. Herod had a bit of a fear of John the Baptist. In fact, he had some rather good things to say about John. He, he said that John was a righteous man. He said that John was a good man. In fact, Herod protected John. That's what Mark 6 says. Mark 6 says that Herod was so afraid of John because he knew that John was in connection with Jesus that he did all he could 
to protect John. But then there's something happened. John confronted Herod about Herod's having relations with his brother's wife, Herodias. John looked at him and said, you know it's not lawful for you to be engaging in sexual relations with your brother's wife. It gave conviction to Herod, I believe, but Herod wasn't the central person who was upset. The Bible says that Herodias hated John, had a grudge against John, and wanted to destroy John, but she didn't have the political power nor the economic power to bring about an execution. And I think it's verse 20 that has a strange line. It says, strategically one day, Herod has a party, a birthday party. And he, keep an eye on the word strategically, he invites all of the military and political dignitaries to his party. And Herodias' daughter, Herod's niece, comes in and dances for the party. She dances so well that she makes pleasing to Herod and his guests and Herod just throws up his hands and says, you do such a wonderful job. Whatever you want up until half of the kingdom, just let me know what it is. Girlfriend talks with her mama. Remember I said the word strategic? Mama said, oh, the moment has now come. She tells her daughter to tell Herod, tell him you want the head of John the Baptist on the platter. When Herod hears this, Herod is struck, shocked, disappointment, but he can't go back on his word. He could, he could, he could. He's, he's the providing or presiding procurator. He could go back on his word. But he was just like you and I. His boys were there. His friends were there. He didn't want to hear later for them to tell him, man, you weak. You said something, then change your mind. And so he had to follow through. He sent an executioner down to behead John. And he brought John's head back on a platter watch this, and gave it to the niece, and the niece turned and gave it to Herodias. Herodias says, finally, I've gotten what I wanted. And the Bible says around verse 30 of chapter 6 of Mark that the disciples had to go and claim the decapitated body of John and prepare him for burial. I call this the face of Jesus, the face of restoration, because the Bible says when they got back to Jesus, they shared with him not only what happened to John, but all that they had experienced. And here's what they experienced, twofold. They experienced progress because they went out, those disciples evangelizing, and people were redeemed, baptized, changed, but they also experienced pain 
because they had to take the body of John the Baptist and bury it. Now, let me bring this home. You and I are accustomed to burying loved ones, but I don't think anybody in this room has ever buried anyone who's been decapitated. Think of what these disciples felt when they saw John's body with no head. They became overwhelmed by the pain, I am convinced, because Jesus says around the 31st verse, you need to take some time alone by yourself. Go, go off into the mountain and be alone because you need to recuperate. You need to be restored and you need to be replenished. I started this message introductorily this manner this morning because I'm convinced that after you witness people who have experienced so much trauma and drama through the course of a week, whose lives are turned upside down, whose plenty seems become in plenty of need, whose once laughter now has turned into tears, and whose once wholeness and joy has left and been replaced by disappointment. When they come to worship, they need to experience the restoring face of God. And worship is a place where they can get away to, to recuperate. And I don't know about you, but there have been times when my heart has been disappointed and it's something about being in church. Just, just being in the space of the sanctuary and it's calmness that seems to give some sense of being able to recoup what I've lost through the course of a week. Doesn't matter what it is, patience. Doesn't matter what it is, endurance, a smile. It can be replaced in this sacred place because God is in the recuperating business. But Jesus said you need to also be restored. That's why he left Judea and went back to Galilee. Because he knew that these disciples now needed direction after a traumatic moment. They needed to recuperate, but they needed to be restored and they needed to be replenished because there was a lot more ministry and life ahead waiting on them. And let me close by telling you this. Here's the joy. When you read verse 3, it's only the introduction to verse 4. Because verse 4 reminds us he left Judea to go back to Galilee, but he had to go through another town to get there. And you see, the straight shot from Judea to Galilee, he took that. But in order to do that, you have to go through Samaria. He could have did like typical Jews do, 
because they don't co-mingle with Samaritans. They went around. But he went right through. And that's what I'm going to tell you about next Sunday. When he went through what he confronted and what he was able to do all because he left Judea. Okay, pastor, what's your ultimate, ultimate aim? What are you trying to tell us? Sometimes it pays to leave than to continue to stay and go through. Because in leaving, God has another direction for you to take. And he may take you through someplace different to get to where you need to be. Sometimes we tolerate people's offenses to us extensively. But there does come a time when you need to put a period there. Shut that down and make your way to another spot. Because you know as long as you sit there and take it, people will give it. Amen, amen. They'll give it repeatedly until you stand and say, enough is enough. Or in the language of Fannie Lou Hamer, you get sick and tired of being sick and tired. So in Jesus' eyes, I'm convinced the disciples saw the face of restoration. But here's the joy. They're not the only one who's been restored by God's grace. They're not the only ones who came to church and saw the face of Jesus and got restoration. They're not the only ones whose lives have been recouped, put back together after being shattered by life's predicaments. And they're not the only ones who are still being restored. Because that's the victory. I'm not whole yet. God is still working out my soul's salvation. And I don't know about you, but there's some stuff I'm still wrestling with. I hear y'all snickering back there. I'm, I'm thinking about some folk who still cuss you out even though they saved. They don't want to. They don't want to. But they'll tell you, don't push me too far now. I'll, 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 I'll let it come out. Some folk will still slap you if you push them too far. Because God is still working on you. We're still recouping and making your life what it needs to be. Because I want to be what God wants me to be, but I'm still dealing with who I want to be. And as a result of that, God has to constantly work at shaving off stuff in me. I know I'm the only one that has that challenge. I know y'all don't, y'all... This is a holy sake. We need to change the name of this church to the Greater Little Zion Baptist Holy Sacred Community. Where only the pastor is full of drama and the parishioners are holy and pure. I'm shouting because I know and you know I ain't telling the truth in that. All of us still working on our souls. There is this face 
restoration. Father, somebody on this Lord's day needs to be restored.